morning, everyone. You know, for a second time here, it just feels like we're family. This is a very hospitable church. We've had the outdoor service, now we're moving indoors. So we've had the full experience here at Royal York. It's been just a blessing to meet you and to know you and to just marvel at the fact we can come together and not be in fellowship a lot, but we have such a fellowship in Christ, we just feel such a bond of the Spirit together that we're united in Christ through faith. We have this one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all over his church, Christ the Lord of the church. Uh, and to come here, we've actually leaned on Peter a little bit at our church too. Maybe my son Matt mentioned that last time down, but uh, Matt's over our college and career age students and, and invited Peter to come for a, a retreat. He might have even told you that's where he met his wife at one of those type of retreats. They were the last two in the room, and so they thought they'd better get married. <laughs> so we are uh, doing a series at our church in Isaiah. So 66 chapters, it's a long book, and we've decided we're going to do it all. We're not just kind of picking and choosing. And we've had some pushback, because at times we'll have, ask people to stand, and we'll read two chapters. And sometimes it just seems like a very difficult to understand portion in a long book like Isaiah, but it's proven to be a real blessing to our church. And Isaiah, what a rich book, a rich history, the second most quoted book of the Bible in the New Testament from the Old, uh, second to Psalms. And, and just to have through Isaiah all through it pointing to this crescendo, pointing to this Savior that's coming. And so we just found rich little blessings, nuggets of blessing in the early chapters, and we're going to be today in Isaiah 22, if you turn there with me, and which is a third of the way through the book, and so you're, uh, you're joining with our church in the middle of a series in a large prophetic book, and partaking of a sermon that, we, that I gave back in our church on August 7. Can we stand for the reading of God's Word, and I'll read this chapter. The oracle concerning the valley of vision. What do you mean that you have gone up, all of you, to the housetops? You who are full of shoutings, tumultuous city, exultant town. You are slain or not slain with the sword or dead in battle. All your leaders have fled together. Without the bow they were captured. All of you who were found were captured, though they had fled far away. Therefore I said, look away from me. Let me weep bitter tears. Do not labor to comfort me concerning the destruction of the daughter of my people. For the Lord God of hosts has a day of tumult and trampling and confusion in the valley of vision, a battering down of walls and a shouting to the mountains. And Elam bore the quiver with chariots and horsemen, and Kerr uncovered the shield. Your choicest valleys were full of chariots, and the horsemen took their stand at the gates. He has taken away the covering of Judah. In that day, you looked to the weapons of the house of the forest, and you saw that the breaches of the city of David were many. You collected the waters of the lower pool, and you counted the houses of Jerusalem, and you broke down the houses to fortify the wall. You made a reservoir between the two walls for the water of the old pool. 
but you did not look to him who did it or see him who planned it long ago. In that day, the Lord God of hosts called for weeping and mourning, for baldness and wearing sackcloth. And behold, joy and gladness, killing oxen and slaughtering sheep, eating flesh and drinking wine. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. The Lord of hosts has revealed himself in my ears. Surely this iniquity will not be atoned for until you die says the Lord God of hosts. Thus says the Lord God of hosts, come, go to the steward, to Shebna, who is over the household, and say to him, what have you to do here, and whom have you here that you have cut out here for yourself a tomb? You who cut out a tomb on the height and carve a dwelling for yourself in the rock. Behold, the Lord will hurl you away violently, O you strong man. He will seize firm hold on you, and whirl you around and around, and throw you like a ball into a wide land. There you shall die, and there shall be your glorious chariots, you shame of your master's house. I will thrust you from your office, and you will be pulled down from your station. In that day I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe, and will bind your sash on him, and will commit your authority to his hand. And he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut, and he shall shut and none shall open. And I will fasten him like a peg in a secure place, and he will become a throne of honor to his father's house. And they will hang on him the whole honor of his father's house the offspring and issue, every small vessel from the cups to all the flagons. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, the peg that was fastened in a secure place will give way, and it will be cut down and fall, and the load that was on it will be cut off, for the Lord has spoken. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Father, I thank you for this opportunity that we might speak truth in love to one another, that it might pierce hearts in every generation. So, Lord, this is your word, and as Josh prayed, may it prosper, this living, abiding, and powerful word of God. Heaven and earth will pass away, but not this word. So, Lord, may it have an effect on our hearts and draw us closer to you. And so, Lord, grant us understanding and wisdom and knowledge of the riches of your grace and the the riches of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and all of the blessings you give us through him. In his name we pray. Amen. Do some of you like to travel? Being dairy farmers, that's what my wife and I have grown up on our farm near Georgetown. Fourth generation, it doesn't allow you a lot of time to get away. But... It is neat to think about traveling to different cities around the world. What might be the most amazing city you visited, or, or what city would you like to visit? Uh, one of Barb's cousins told him one time, he's, he's been through Europe, and he said, Paris, that's, that's the best spot. The Eiffel Tower, the Gothic Notre Dame Cathedral, and taking in the cafe culture in Paris, or London, Buckingham Palace, and the Thames River, and Big Ben. 
For me, it's Mississauga. <laughs> Barbara and I have a, we have this farm, it's up, it's north of Mississauga, so out of our window at the south of the house, we're looking at City Hall in Mississauga and some of the, some of the condos that are being built. And we're always amazed at the many different shapes they can put a condo into down in Mississauga. They're building a couple right now. We see it going up every day right from our window. And seeing the sunset, sometimes at, at, in the evening we look at the sun shining and it's, it's shining on those buildings in Mississauga. Thinking of a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. In Isaiah's day it might be Damascus, Beth Elam, Kerr. We might think of Tokyo, Singapore, Sydney, Los Angeles. Cities with this maze of office buildings, hotels, the pulse of the entertainment district, museums, sounds and sights of the culture, famous cuisine, restaurants on roofs bordered by swimming pools. To gaze over the city, what do we see? The extent of man's accomplishments. This exhilarating view from the top. The city takes on a life of its own. And that's where we find ourselves in this oracle, the Valley of Vision. We are in a section of Isaiah where there's two sets of oracles to the, to the nations, but Isaiah is speaking to Judah and Jerusalem and all these oracles. And here's one here, to the Valley of Vision, zeroing in on one of the most famous cities in the world, Jerusalem. And we will see that in Jerusalem, they've taken on a life of their own and not in the way you might expect. So as we read earlier in the chapter, if we look at verses 1 to 3, we see a stark contrast. Isaiah is saying, what you, what's going on here in the city, all of you to the housetops, full of shoutings, a tumultuous city, and this exulting revelry in the city. And then side by side to that, all of a sudden it says, your slain are not slain with the sword or dead in battle. Your leaders have fled together. So Im immediately in this valley of vision, there seems to be something just not right. Revelry alongside this capture of the leaders. So in Jerusalem, the barbecues are lit. The invites are out. The city's in party mode. Everyone get to the rooftops. Yet the leaders, when confronted by peril, were escaping out the back door. Little character, little wisdom, man-centered, entertainment-driven. What's going on, says the prophet? The city was in a dire situation. So this is the foundation of the oracle. It concerns Jerusalem. As we see, Isaiah called in verse 4, the daughter of my people. A term used by Jeremiah many times in here in Isaiah to, to re refer to Jerusalem. So this constant pulse of activity did reflect the darkness of their hearts, deluded hearts, men living it up in, in the city when the city was ready to fall. Sin blinds. In the valley of vision, there was darkness upon their hearts. The city had taken on a life of its own and God was not invited to the party. Paul wrote about that in Romans. He said, although they knew God in chapter 1, they did not acknowledge him as God. 
nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Jesus would say as well, men love darkness rather than light. For their deeds were evil. When the enemy's on the doorstep, it doesn't seem to be the right time to plan a parade. So I'd like you to go back with me to chapter 1 of Isaiah. The first five chapters of Isaiah are somewhat of a microcosm of the entire book. Some summary teaching. And if we turn to chapter 1, I want us to get a feel for the, the situation in Jerusalem. So chapter 1, verses 2 to 6a. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth. For the Lord has spoken. Children I have reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly, they have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it. Then if you turn with me to chapter 2, verse 3. Many people shall come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And then at verse 7, what did these nations find when they were coming to Jerusalem? Their land is filled with silver and gold, and there is no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with horses. There is no end to their chariots. Their land is filled with idols, and they bow down to the work of their hands, to what their fingers have made. So we see Jerusalem from head to toe sick. Ah, the sinful nation laden with iniquity. We see the nation saying, let's go to Jerusalem, that we might hear the word of the Lord. But what did they find? A city, again, turning away from God, full of idolatry. This is not a Mount Zion image, is it? When they said in chapter 2, let us go to the mountain of the Lord. This is truly an image of a valley. Not about a time of blessing, but a time of judgment. This is a vision about vision. In the valley of vision, a dark valley and a godless time for Jerusalem. But unlike the citizenry, Isaiah was seeing clearly. I'd like you to look at verse 4 of chapter 22. This is the man who in chapter 6 of Isaiah, my eyes have seen the king. Understood his sin. And the Lord brought atonement to Isaiah. And he sent Isaiah out to proclaim the word of God to Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. But here in this time, when he saw, saw this 
revelry in the midst of, of difficulty and trouble. He said, I said, look away from me and let me weep bitter tears. Do not labor to comfort me concerning the destruction of the daughter of my people. Like, do you feel the heart and the, 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 the distress in Isaiah? Weeping to comfort the destruction like the loss of a daughter. Weeping bitter tears. And it's just something to stop and just remark. Here's the, the prophet coming and seeing the city moving farther and farther away from God. And think of the grief of losing a close family member. Wasn't our church recently uh, a family lost a daughter at the age of 19? She had neuroblastoma. From the 5 to 19, 14, 15 years at Sick Kids Hospital. But it was terminal. She finally perished in the grief and the sorrow. Think of Isaiah wailing and, and weeping concerning this destruction within this holy city of God. And it, it reveals the heart of God. So it's, I want you to turn with me to Luke 19. Verses 41. Just going to read 41 to 44. And when he, Jesus, drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you, and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Just such a parallel. The heart of Isaiah and the heart of Christ weeping over the city, both seeing a time of judgment coming. It was Nebuchadnezzar in Isaiah's day. In Jesus' day, it was Rome. But do we see the heart of Christ for sinners and sufferers? Dane Orland wrote that book, Gentle and Lowly, he said the heart of Christ for sinners and sufferers, the heart of his prophet weeping and mourning, and the heart of Christ himself looking at the city, oh, if you would only have turned to me. But there's coming a judgment upon you. And it says here, he saw the city and he wept. Think about our Lord weeping on the way to Jerusalem. So here in Isaiah 22, the covering is removed. The shield is gone. We see it in verses 5 to 7, the Lord God of hosts has a day of tumult and trampling and confusion a battering down of walls. All the valleys were full of chariots and the horsemen took their stand at the gates because the Lord had removed that covering. This was a time of judgment for Jerusalem. So this was a period in the Isaiahic prophecy that the superpowers were on the move. 
Assyria was one of the main powers that the northern kingdom under uh, Pekka and was trying to align up with, with Syria to, to battle against Assyria. Later on, Isaiah will see Hezekiah pleading with God when Assyria was coming close to the holy city. So it was like chess pieces moving, Egypt, Babylon, Assyria in, in these days. But there was only one person who controlled the board, and it was Yahweh, Yahweh of hosts. Earlier in Isaiah, he would say, Assyria, the rod of my anger, carrying out my fury. And here the Lord was, we're looking at actually history unfolding. And in this time in Isaiah, as I say, there were all different types of movements with the superpowers of the day. So the tumult of revelry in this first section is replaced by the tumult of war. The surroundings of, of Jerusalem were adorned with chariots and horsemen. The Lord of hosts, in verse 5, had a day. So that first section, which I forgot to tell you, I titled, The Valley of Vision was marked by darkness, verses 1 to 8. And then we're looking at the next section, 8b to 14, the darkness is marked by self-reliance. So it's crisis time, and Judah, they were prepared to answer. Look at the response. Man was on the move in the Valley of Vision at a frantic pace. In that day, you looked to the weapons of the house of the forest. You saw the breaches of the David of the city were many. You collected the waters. You counted the houses. You broke down the houses to fortify the wall. You made a reservoir. So man was on the move. They were keeping the weapons in sight. They were fortifying the wall. Sorry if any of you live on Dixon Road or Lawrence Ave. We're going to need your houses. They were cannibalizing houses on the wall of Jerusalem to fortify the wall. Anything to, okay, we can handle this. Protect the water supply. A frantic effort, in a sense, to keep the party going to get back to what really mattered in the city, to what men truly loved. I was reading uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones on this passage said, never have been men been so busy, even in our day, to repair the breaches in their lives. Let's stop the rod and put in safeguards, huge dollars thrown at problems. We can fix things. Climate, racism, sexual dominance. Men busy to repair the breaches in their own strength. But what needs repaired in Jerusalem? The heart. The heart of man, Jeremiah would say, is deceitful, desperately wicked. But so self-consumed, they looked to the wall and not the temple. They looked horizontally, not vertically. When the temple ultimately was destroyed by the Babylonian armies, it was just another building. Long forgotten by the people of Jerusalem, a couple doors down from Sportcheck, Walmart, or Swiss Chalet. Isaiah would say, their hearts are far from me. Does that remind you of today? 
in our cities, churches turned into community centers, or just another tourist attraction in the city, people would go in and say, I wonder what used to take place here. That was the situation where, that was in Jerusalem at that time. They forgot about the temple, the place of, where to meet with God. Life in the big city had squeezed out God. The city had taken on a life of its own. And then we see in 11, be the rebuke of this oracle. But you did not look to him who did it, or see him who planned it long ago. Is there tumult in your life right now? Where are you going to look? Troubles surrounding you on every side. Where are you going to turn? You may have just lost a job. You're anxious about the future. You've had a health scare. Worries and fears and questions consume you. Maybe a key decision you have to make in your life. Or you started a new school this fall. Strife in the family. Where will you look? In Isaiah's time, as I mentioned earlier, they were looking to Egypt. They looked to Syria. Or actually to Babylon. And the idols of those nations. It's like running to your best friend. Or a psychic. Or to pornography. Or drugs. Or Netflix. With that attitude which says, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. It's not a way of escape, is it? The prison walls actually get thicker when we look everywhere but to the Lord. So will you turn your eyes toward heaven? To the God who has compassion, to this one who planned it all? So this prophetic call in the Valley of Vision, look at verse 12. In that day, the Lord God of hosts called for weeping and mourning, for baldness and wearing sackcloth. So when we turn to the Lord, let's just acknowledge the fact that God does not turn away from tear-soaked eyes. When we look heavenward, he does not say you need to speak eloquently. He only says that we come and speak with him. Even if our faith only has a faint pulse. So when the covering is removed, which God removed the covering from Judah, and there's major structural damage, we need to look to the one who has the blueprint. The one who planned all the circumstances to sovereign God, who has the eternal blueprint for your life, who knows all about your pain and your fear, the God who loves you and whose heart is open wide for you. And he weeps if we resist his love and his grace. So a simple message in verse 12 is, Beloved, pray. Whatever's in your heart right now, whatever needs you might have, Isaiah has said the Lord God is called to come to him, to weep, to mourn, 
but pray. And if you don't know the Lord, or if you've never spoken to Him, this would be a great day just to pray. Stop looking within and start looking to God. So I brought a book with me today called The Valley of Vision. So the Puritans saw Jerusalem's failure, saw their response to God, which was joy and gladness in light of the situation instead of weeping and mourning. And they put together a book of Puritan prayers, or Arthur Bennett uh, put them together from different Puritan writers. And it's called the Valley of Vision. And people that look to God in the right spirit, and they went full spectrum, they say, we're going to wholeheartedly open our hearts to God. Chapters in here called Continually Repentance and Self-Deprecation. Just want to read you the first uh, prayer is actually called in the book, The Valley of Vision. I'll read the first few lines. Thou hast brought me to the valley of vision where I live in the depths, but see thee in the heights. Hemmed in by mountains of sin, I behold thy glory. Let me learn by paradox that the way down is the way up. That to be low is to be high. That the broken heart is the healed heart. And the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit. That the repenting soul is the victorious soul. That to have nothing is to possess all. And that to bear the cross is to wear the crown. That to give is to receive. That the valley is the place of vision. So I just love having that resource that was initiated by seeing Jerusalem's failure. And they called it the Valley of Vision. But what God called them to do, they didn't. But the Puritans calling us back in such a deep spirit back to that place of prayer and repentance towards God. So we see, as I mentioned in verse 13, Jerusalem's refusal and their entrenched self-reliance. Behold, joy and gladness, killing oxen, slaughtering sheep, eating flesh, and drinking wine. Ligon Duncan said this Valley of Vision book helps him pray when he has nothing left in the tank. The book helps for it brings themes of the Bible so vividly to life. He said it's one of the three best books on prayer. So the valley need not be a place of spiritual blindness, but a place to look to God. A place to let go of self-reliance and embrace self-deprecation. So stop looking horizontally to your own strength and to the comfort of the majority in the city. Make the choice to look to God. Another portion of scripture just like to draw our attention to are the Psalms of Ascents. They were psalms of people going to Jerusalem in the right spirit. I was glad when they said to me, let's what? Go to the house of the Lord. I was glad when they said to me, let's tear down some houses and try to fortify the wall. I don't think he said that, did he? So Psalm 120 to 134 are called Psalms of Ascents. 
I'm just going to read a couple of verses to you. I lift my eyes to the hills. From whence does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplication. That's Psalm 130. Psalm 123, again, these psalms of ascent, going to Jerusalem, keeping festival. To you I lift up my eyes. You who are enthroned in the heavens, behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, the eyes of a maidservant to her mistress, our eyes are going to look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. So here's again the psalmist picking up those themes of lifting up our eyes in the valley of vision. Lifting up our eyes to the hills, to you I lift up my eyes. Just such a beautiful portion of scripture. So the device of the enemy is to keep you thinking that the rooftop is as high as you need to go. All of you to the rooftops. Look at what man can do. So the challenge is here in Isaiah 22. Are you going to live in that pattern of verse 13? A man-centered we can work it out pattern. Is it not time to live in the Puritan pattern? The prayerful pattern of verse 12. And then we see the sad reality. When Jesus says, or the, or the prophet says, sorry, in verse 14, the Lord of hosts has revealed himself in my ears. So, so where there's no repentance, like verse 12, no desire to hear from God, ignoring the prophet. No eternal perspective. This is what the Lord says. Surely this iniquity will not be atoned for until you die, says the Lord God of hosts. So church, let's pray. And let's look up. So now we come to this final section where a self-reliant one is hurled away. Verses 15 to 25. So these men are named in the book of 2 Kings, Shebna and Eliakim. And they're mentioned as part of the leadership team under King Hezekiah. So Shebna was his own master and used the authority to ensure his legacy. And Isaiah condemns him here for spending most of his time building this tomb for himself. Verse, verse 16, what have you to do here? And whom have you here that you have cut out here a tomb for yourself? So, so Shevna is, is like a man that actually is resembling the city. So Jerusalem, Isaiah starts with a question to Jerusalem. What is this all of you going to the house house? And then he says to Shevna, what are you doing here? Cutting out of the rock and on the height building a tomb for yourself. I think of the question God might ask us. You know, Terry, where's your heart? Terry, why are you doing this? And we, we think of the, when, when Scripture says that all of us are naked and open to the eyes of him of whom we must give account. So like the city, this again, judgment. Judgment is coming to Shebna. Self-exalting, self-reliant, self-consumed, self-deifying Shebna. 
In verse 17, the Lord will hurl you away violently, O you strong man. He will seize firm hold on you and whirl you around and around and throw you like a ball into a wide land. He was put in God's centrifuge and released. Sent to a foreign land. God windmilled him so far. Like the tail of a meteor, he was so dizzy that when he landed, he did not know what country he was in. The judgment of Shebna, cast out in shame. God says through the prophet Isaiah, my glory I will give to no other. In chapter 42, there will be no lasting glory for Shebna, for he was the one who brought shame to his master's house. But a man better than Shebna was chosen. And now we come to this final section about Eliakim. In that day, I will call my servant Eliakim. A good man, but just a man. The Bible says man at his best state is just a vapor. So this man who says was fastened securely by God, in verse 23, I will fasten him like a peg in a secure place. But yet down in verse 25, it says that peg will give way. It will be cut down and fall. And they were going to hang on him the whole honor of his father's house. Eliakim's family say, okay, Eliakim's in a place of authority. We can lean on Eliakim. I don't know if you're Lord of the Rings fans, but at one point there, the, the wargs were coming against the trees and all the dwarves were falling down. And one guy grabbed the feet of his brother and the other guy get, grabs Gandalf's rod and they were all just kind of hanging down. And what, ultimately, one man cannot hold all of them. Just one after another started to, to cling. So I claim in this place, by the time they got Eliakim's 42nd cousin and great-grandnephew, the peg gave way. The whole of his house. So the problem wasn't Eliakim. He was a good man. But that men will look to him to solve their problems. Men looking to men and not to God. Oh, if we just had the right leadership for Hockey Canada or for the RCMP or for our country in Toronto. Eliakim will fix things up. Let's look to Eliakim. Let's hang all our hopes on Eliakim. But as we close the sermon, there's something very unique. Did you hear it when I was reading with how they described Eliakim? Look at the language of starting at verse 20. In that day, I will call my servant Eliakim. 21, I will clothe him with your robe. I will bind your sash in him. Commit your authority. He shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And then in verse 22, and I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut. He shall shut and none shall open. So Isaiah has the four suffering servant songs. In 42, it says, Behold my servant whom I have chosen, in whom is all my delight. In chapter 52, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up. He shall be exalted. So point again, Isaiah, in, in his prophecies, looking to Christ. 
looking towards this one who was come. So here he calls Eliakim, my servant. And on his shoulder the key to the house of David in Isaiah 9, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And of his government, and there, the increase shall be no end. For he's on the throne of David and over his kingdom. In chapter 9, it says, From this time forth forever the zeal of Yahweh will do this. And then he shall open and none shall, shall shut. That was read this morning. To the church of Philadelphia, write this. The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. Messian messianic language. So Jesus, Luke 9.51 says, Jesus set his face like a flint. His eye was fixed towards Jerusalem. So he entered the valley of vision. Through the valley, full of Roman chariots, enemies at the gates, enemies within, soon he was delivered into the hands of sinful men, powerful men, rooftop men, wealthy men of the city, and they all looked down on him. They all despised him. He had no former majesty that we, we should look at him or no beauty that we should desire him. We hid our faces from him. Yet this was this plan back in Isaiah 22. This is the plan, the unfolding plan of God. Jesus slain from the foundation of the world. So we entered the value of our rebellion, the valley of our rebellion. And he was fastened securely like this peg in a secure place, fastened to a Roman cross, pierced in our place, crushed for our iniquity. For all of us, who's gone astray. And every one of us turning to his own way, what did the Lord do? He laid on him the iniquity of us all. And that peg stood firm, didn't it? It was our sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought us life and we know what, it's finished. The peg of Eliakim gave way, but this one who holds the key, the government on his shoulders, the cross held him there until he said, it is finished. So atonement has come. Atonement for sins has come. Our sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross. And we bear it no more. So praise the Lord. So friend, will you look to him for forgiveness, for healing, for wisdom, from the valley of your need, will you lift up your eyes to God? Weep and pray, for God loves you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for bringing us to this chapter in Isaiah that we might see Jesus magnified, that we might see Jesus as the one who brings atonement, the one who carried the weight of sin that was placed upon him and became our Lord and Savior. So thank you, Lord, for the resurrection that we can at all times, even right now, lift up our eyes to him, to Christ, to the Good Shepherd, that we might come boldly on account of his shed blood into the throne room of God and, and just see the plentiful mercy and grace there for us. 
So Lord, encourage every heart and thank you for your love. Thank you for turning us away from self and turning us towards you, the true giver of life, who loves us. Amen.